Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. All right, so last week, if you were here with us in Easter, on Easter, we ended our series in Mark called The Cross-Shaped Life. And um, we ended it with this interesting passage in Mark 16, 5 through 8. It's the, it's the last actual ending in Mark, and it's a little bit awkward. So let's go ahead and put that up there. It says, as they entered the tomb, the women who went to the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And that's how the book of Mark ends. So my family, we love Marvel movies. Do any of you guys like Marvel movies? Okay, so the best thing about Marvel movies is, well, not the best thing, but one of the best things is the secret ending. If you go to a Marvel movie or you watch one at home and you watch the credits roll, everything really great happens. It's this, always this big, triumphant, dramatic scene at the end, and then the credits roll and you think it's over, but if you don't stick around, you miss the secret ending. And the secret ending will often kind of link that story that you just watched to the next story. And it kind of threads the whole Marvel universe together. So we love, we love Marvel movies. Like when we're sitting around and there's nothing to do, usually Thor Ragnarok will be put on just, just because. <laughs> just because. Because you can never get enough of Thor in Ragnarok. So, so we ended with Mark, and today's passage is kind of like one of those secret endings. Like you think it's all over, and we went through all of the, the different times that Jesus appeared to the, to the disciples and his ascension into heaven. But if you, if you miss this chapter of John, you kind of miss this secret ending that links the story of Jesus with his disciples and the way he lived with them here on earth to the way that Jesus lives with us and is present with us and how we embody and carry forth his ministry in a post-resurrection world. So we're going to go to that, John 21, verses 1 through 3. We'll start there. After these things, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. So remember in Mark, he told the women, go tell Peter and the disciples to go, we'll see you in Galilee. So they're now at the Sea of Galilee and it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, well, we'll go with you. So they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So, Imagine this scene, okay? The dramatic ending in Mark. Jesus rises from the dead. They see him in all these different scenarios. Thomas sees him. They see his wounds. They see, they see his pierced side. And then all of a sudden, flash forward to 
like that one scene at the event, at the secret ending of the Avengers where they're all sitting around eating shawarma. You remember that? So they're just all sitting around, maybe skipping rocks, wondering what to do. We just received the Holy Spirit. Nothing. What's going on? They're standing around. They don't know what to do. They're confused. So much has happened in the last several weeks, and they don't know what to do with themselves. They're maybe discouraged, and they're tired of trying to figure it out. What just happened? What do we do? So what often happens when we're discouraged and we're tired and we don't know what to do? We go back to what we know. So that's what they did. So Peter's like, well, there's nothing else to do. I got to provide for my family somehow. We're going fishing. So they go fishing. And then in verse 4, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize that it was him. He called out to them, hey, friends, have you any fish? Nope, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple who Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say this, As soon as he heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him because he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net, for they were not far from shore, just about 100 yards. So this is a full circle moment. Does it sound familiar at all? It's a full circle moment because... Jesus is standing there. This is post-resurrection. It's like a deja vu moment. They have been here before, and John is the first person to recognize it. If you go back to the beginning of the story with Jesus and the disciples, in Luke chapter 5, can you pull that up? It says, one day, this is the very beginning of his relationship with the disciples. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is also the Sea of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw the water's edge, two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and he asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out in deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night, and we have not caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. So he lets down the nets, and when they had done so, he had caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they, be- they, they came, and they filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' feet. And he said, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And Jesus said to Simon Peter, don't be afraid, Peter, because from now on you will fish for people. So there's this scene early on. John's there. Peter's there. They're all there together, and they experienced this thing with Jesus before, and here they are again, post-resurrection, and it's, it's almost the same situation. And what John is realizing, he's the first to realize because he remembers what 
God has done. He remembered what Jesus had done, and it helped him see and identify who Jesus is and what he's doing now. So he says, look, it's the Lord. He recognizes it. And then Peter all of a sudden wakes up, because think about how discouraged Peter must have been. He had just denied Christ three times per Jesus's prediction. He knew that Jesus knew that he was going to deny him, and he did. Peter didn't think he would. He thought he would be there till the end, and now he feels so diminished. He feels like a failure. He's discouraged. He's doubting his calling. He's doubting whether or not he belongs there and belongs with Jesus. And sometimes when we're doubting and when we're discouraged, we need someone else to point us to Jesus. And that's what's happening here. He needed John's voice to say, it's the Lord. And immediately he sees him and he gets in the water and he goes over to Jesus. And then verse nine, when they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. If you recall, um, on Good Friday, we read through these passages, and the charcoal fire was the place that, that Peter was when he denied Jesus. We have the painting, I think. The first time a, a guard asked him, aren't you with him? Aren't you one of them? Nope. And then the two other times, it was two servants standing around the fire while he was warming himself, and he denies Christ twice. I wasn't with him. I'm not one of them. I don't know him. So it's almost like when they're pulling ashore and they see the fire, imagine Peter smelling the smell and seeing the sight of shame. Like when we have these memories that are traumatic to us and difficult for us, the regrets that we have, often it's something that we see and smell and feel that triggers that, that feeling, that awful feeling of shame that we feel. Imagine Peter in that spot. And so it goes on in verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and he hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net wasn't torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples at this point dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came to them and did the same with the fish. This was, the, this was now the third time that Jesus had appeared to the disciples. So he brings them around again, around a meal. He sets a table on the beach around a fire, and he brings them together to show what post-resurrection life will be like. How experiencing Jesus happens in the breaking of the bread, in fellowship. And that fellowship, that breaking of the bread together, restores any intimacy that might have been broken. It brings about familiarity. So they're all sitting around the fire, but this time the meal is different. This time, instead of breaking it and serving them, he invites them to collaborate in the meal with them. He doesn't need their fish. He's got fish already on the grill, but he says, bring me your fish. Bring me your fish and partner with me and join my meal that we're gonna serve together. He's beginning to show them what life will be like together around a table, partnering with Jesus, carrying the work forward. 
So they're sitting around enjoying a meal. And if you've ever been around a fire pit with a bunch of friends, you know that that's when things kind of calm. Everybody looks at the fire, stares at the flames. And some of the best conversations come about around a fire pit. Peter might have been sitting there looking at that fire, remembering his shame, and remembering way back when he was with Jesus, and Jesus asking him, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus said to Peter in that moment, I'm going to tell you who you are, Peter. You, you are a rock. And this is the rock on which I will put together my church, a church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it back. Peter's remembering that. And I wonder, like, did he, did he sit there and doubt that? Did he think, well, I guess I blew that one. I can't show up for that. That's not me anymore. And it's like Peter is quiet. His, his whole demeanor has quieted down. He's no longer that impetuous Peter, right? So they're sitting around, and the verse continues in, chapter, in verse 15, where Jesus talks to Peter directly. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to him, Simon Peter, Simon son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you, Jesus said. Feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Jesus said, well, take care of my sheep. Tend my sheep. The third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And that word hurt, it doesn't really suffice the original um, meaning of that word that was used. It's more like a grief. You know, like three times Jesus, has to, Jesus asks him, do you love me more than these? And by the third time, it's like Peter feels the grief of, what, of abandoning Jesus of denying Jesus. Now this is a much more sober-minded Peter than the Peter we experienced all through Mark, right? The Peter that said, no way, Lord, I, you're not going to die when, when Jesus would tell him that he would explain to them that he was going to go and die. No way. When Jesus wanted to wash his feet, not just my feet, God, my head all over me. I mean, he was so impetuous. When the guards come to the garden, he goes and he cuts off one of the guards' ears because he's so zealous. But then he denied him, and now he's tempered, he's sober-minded, and he's just going one day at a time. This is a different fire than the one that was before. The fire from, from the, night of the, the night of the crucifixion was a, was a cold night. It was dark. There was hostility in the questioning. This is daybreak. This is morning. This is a new day. There's the warmth of Jesus' presence. And there's a questioning that's the opposite of hostility. It's a welcoming. It's an invitation. And it's interesting how he says, Peter... 
do you love me more than these? And it could mean, it could mean two things. It could mean, do you love me more than these guys love me? Could be that. I think it's more, Peter, do you love me more than anything else? Do you love me the most? More than fishing? More than your calling? And Peter says, yes, you know that I love you. And it's immediately followed up with an invitation to join Jesus into doing something, to embodying his love in a life of action, feeding, tending, nourishing, caring for Jesus' own. But it's rooted in love. It begins with love. It's like Jesus is trying to root him in, in his love, and their, their relationship is based on love. Because sometimes what happens, especially for those of us who think we're doing the Lord's work, who are doing the Lord's work, whether we're in church ministry, any kind of ministry, sometimes we love the work more than we love Jesus. And that's what happens because the work is exhilarating. It's fun. Um, we see how we can affect people. We can influence people. We can be part of their transformation. And then we begin to fall in love with the work more than we fall in love with Jesus. And that's when things go sideways and things get dangerous. But at the other hand, doing the work in a response to our love for Jesus is where we see and experience Jesus post-resurrection. It's where we enjoy his presence, where, we, where, where our doubts are met with who he is, where our unbelief is, is met with seeing him move among us. So then he goes on. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. And he said this to indicate which kind of death that... He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. So this was probably written after Peter died, near the end of John's life or if afterwards, and it's talking about the way that Peter was going to die. And after this, he said to Peter, follow me. Come and live a life that's shaped by my life. So after this, Peter says, it says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him. He was the one who had reclined next to Jesus at the supper, and he said, Lord, who is, that? Who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? What's going to happen with him? And Jesus said, if it's my will that he remains until I come, what's it to you? Worry about yourself, Peter. Follow me. So it's so interesting, right? Because we get these callings from God. We kind of know what we're supposed to do, or maybe we're trying to figure out what we're supposed to do. And what we inevitably, it's human nature that we're going to compare ourselves to others. 
all the time, right? We want to compare our, our calling to that person's calling, the way that I write compared to that person's writing, the way that I teach compared to that person's teaching, the way that my home is compared to that person's. And, and Jesus is saying, worry about yourself. This is my calling for you. I have a different thing for him. This is how you're going to live and die. I have a different plan for him. And I love it because even though Peter is being restored here with the three questions of, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, I do. Follow me. It's like he's still this work in progress. He's He's definitely sobered up. He's definitely maturing in his in his the way that he moves about in the world. But but he's he's different and yet he's still in process. So Jesus says, "Stay in your lane. Comparing ourselves to others is a surefire way to suck the life out of us." Comparison places other people and what they think about you above what God thinks about you and what's true. Peter's still learning. The beauty of this is that Jesus comes in this most ordinary, mundane way in the middle of, of what would be their work day, the beginning of their work day, with simple meal of bread and fish, and he comes to them in their everyday vocation and the work that they do and he comes to them at the point of their disappointment and their failure. At the point where they don't know what to do, that's where he comes to them. And Jesus is calling to Peter on this rock, this community was born here in this moment out of Peter's failure, out of his weakness. When his ego was finally harnessed, he was ready to follow while he was still learning. I mean, later on in Acts, there's this moment where Peter and Paul have conflict. And Paul says, I opposed Peter to his face because clearly he was wrong. So he's still who he is, but he's tempered. He's being matured by the Lord. And this post-resurrection story, it's not like the other ones. It's an embodied celebration of what life is like with Jesus, what community life is with Jesus. And it's grounded in this experience of God's fullness and his gift, which is him, his life. The miracle wasn't the miracle of catching fish or turning water into wine or healing and restoring. The miracle was that those things pointed to his presence and the possibility of being with him, and the gift of sharing in this life of love. And Jesus is inviting Peter to join him in it, and he invites us to join him in it and share in that gift. So if we want to see and know and feel and experience the post-resurrection presence of God, we want to go where Jesus is, and we want to join him in it. And Jesus shows us in this passage through the simple act of coming around a meal, around a table where we can be honest, where there's forgiveness, where there's restoration, feeding, tending, serving, appreciation for one another rather than comparison to one another. These are the ways that we love so that others will know that Jesus loves us. That they, these are the ways that Jesus will know people will know Jesus' love. And aren't we all in particular need of this sympathetic question asker when we're in times of disappointment? 
when we're feeling like a failure, when we're not sure what to do? Aren't we in need of the person who just comes and says, do you love me? Let's start at the beginning. Do you love me? It kind of sounds like when he went to the woman at the well, can I have a drink? It's these questions that Jesus asks us to help us see him and to know him. I know that a lot of us in this room are struggling with our vocation. We're struggling with what am I supposed to do? We're waiting for a job. We're waiting to know where to go to college. We're waiting to know what the next right move is. And so we're, we're, we're in this place where we're not sure what to do next. And these are the times that we can lean in. These are the times that we look for Jesus. We look for his action. We look for where he might be, where, what he's inviting us into. And if we can't see it, then we need the people around us to show us where he is and who he is and what he's doing. So I wonder for us in this community, in this little journey church in Brentwood, Tennessee, what are the ways that Jesus is leaning into us? What are the ways that we can go and partner with him and experience him and join Jesus? I mean, an obvious one is the next door, right? We just talked about that. But what are some other ways that we as a community can do that? What are some other ways that Jesus is calling you in your neighborhood with the people you work with, with your family? What are the ways that he's inviting you into partnership with him? What questions do you guys have? Yes, Rebecca. The microphone is so intimidating. You got to talk into it though, because the okay. people online then can't hear and they get a little testy and they start texting us. Okay. <laughs> and excuse my voice is kind of scratchy. Um, so in the context of the next door, and mm -hmm. everything with this story. I just was thinking so much about, um, and I'm in recovery too, um, about this story just makes me think so much about how uh, shame, Peter's mm -hmm. shame mm -hmm. is the number one block of people, people doing God's work and into the opposite extreme, doing the opposite of God's work due to shame. And I feel like it's, 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 it's like shame can be pointed at in so many struggles in the church and religion. Um, you know, I, I had a really hard time finding a church because if there's even any of the shame language, yeah. I'm like, oh, I'm out. <laughs> um, and, and it's so prevalent everywhere of people struggling with shame mm -hmm. and it leading to being frozen um, yeah. from trying to do good or take that next step. Mm -hmm. And I just think about the women at the next door. And that's their battle right now with Mother's Day. Mm -hmm. of walking through the shame yeah. to try and be a good mother. Shaking. Um, and I don't know. I feel like, yeah, ultimately the answer is Jesus' love and yeah. acceptance of our shame. Um, it's just so hard to transfer that from your head to your heart. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so picture, I mean, like this was not planned this way that we 
decided to have them come here today. But just picture what that would be like. I mean, you know, Rebecca, what it feels like to be those women. And so picture what it's like to have that feeling and to question all those things and then have people come and just sit with you and eat with you. I mean, I, I know I'm the person who talks about food all the time and how much eating is so important, but you guys, <laughs> it's a real thing, you know? I mean, like this whole scene of him making food for them and serving them and asking them to bring something, bring some of your fish, put it together with mine, and it starts to soften things and set the tone for this conversation to happen with him and Peter. And it, oh, that grace, that welcoming overcomes the shame, and it restores him. I mean, this is where Peter really has his turning point. This is the moment where he actually really begins to learn what it's like to follow Jesus. Go and feed, tend, serve, take care. And so we think, you know, sometimes we think volunteering for something is like checking a box, but this is like a sacred opportunity that we have to walk through it. You know, think about like the table. I mean, people sign up for the table and, and I mean, I'm amazed like sometimes when someone comes for like one week and they sign up for the table and then sometimes people will say like, I'm super nervous. You know, they might, a lot of people come to church, Rebecca, feeling like you, afraid that they're going to be shamed. If they really, if you guys really knew who I was, you wouldn't want me around your table. But the, the, that's what the table does. It disarms us. It welcomes us. It includes us. And it's like it diffuses all of that, that tension that we feel with our shame. And sometimes it doesn't happen in one go. It takes a few goes. But the, the magic that happens around a table and the breaking of bread and the sharing of a meal, we can't diminish that. Yeah. What is your name? My name is Sherwin. Hi, Sherwin. Hi. Um, I know, but you're like putting it in yeah, my mouth. Okay. Because the people online, the people online, they get, they get really. No, I know, I know, but you holding it close to my mouth is a little awkward. Um, okay, so the question is, that prompted another question, what her question was. Yeah. So what is the responsibility of us as believers for accountability? So I feel like we don't want to bring shame, but I feel like there's a hard, so is it, is it our responsibility to help people understand the role of accountability? Is it just the Lord that brings conviction and we just mm -hmm. support the accountability that people feel on their own? So where does, where does our responsibility fall in saying there was something that shouldn't have been done though yeah. to, from one human to another human? Yeah. And we want to um, say, you should not do that anymore. Right. Yeah. That's such a good question. And I, I think that's a really important question because there's a lot of like um, just talk and thanks to Brene Brown, like shame and all that is like a, it's a big, it's a big conversation. But I think it's really important that we delineate the difference between um, shame and conviction, um, shame and godly sorrow. There's, those are all really different things. And when I think about shame, I think about um, personhood. And, and like who I am as a person. When I feel shame, it usually comes out in things like, I'm not good enough, 
I suck at this. Sometimes it shows up as my pride, you know, that's rooted in shame. But it, it, has, it has more to do with who I am as a person versus the, the things that I do. And so when we want to talk about, like, um, you know, iron sharpening iron and encouraging one another and, and, and he, even having conversations when we see that, that, that someone that we love is going the wrong way, the key is that it's someone that we love. It's rooted in love. So that whole conversation between Peter and, and Jesus started with love. And it was the love that Peter felt towards Jesus in response to Jesus' love for Peter that started to get him to turn and turn towards who he is in Christ and what he's meant to. I think that shame happens a lot when we um, hold people accountable or, or say things to people or lead people that we don't have relationship with. We have to begin with relationship. And if, if someone knows that you love them, you can say almost anything to them in love. If they're convinced that you love them, you can say almost anything. But it has to start there. I, I know that I love you, whether you feel it or not. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of hard to convince you that I love you while I'm holding you accountable. Yeah. So I don't want to stop loving you, but I don't have time to prove that I do. Right. So. Well, and then I think at that point, that's, that's, up, to, that's up to you discerning what and when. Right. I mean, I had this conversation with a friend last night. I mean, sometimes we have people that we love, that they know that, that we love, and we have something to say, but they don't have the ears to hear it. They're not going to receive it. And that is when, like, you trust, you entrust people you love to the Lord. Because if God is the author and perfecter of our faith, he's the author and perfecter of everybody's faith. He's writing the story. Okay, cool. Great. Um, I'm sorry. Tell me. I would, this last one, I promise. Okay. Oh, no, I mean, this, this. So, so that's a great, I agree with you, actually, relationally. But I think institutionally, I don't, I truly don't know what to do because. What do you mean by institutionally? I, I'm, I'm a believer in a body of a right. universal church. Mm -hmm. And I truly love the world. Um, and I know that Christ died for the world. And I want to, it's almost like I want to say, hey, we're both humans, whether we believe or not. And then be, there's a moral compass. Since you, since uh, since the world isn't a believer, there's a moral compass that I can like. Um, there's a moral compass that I can point to, and hopefully that moral compass, you know, is kind of helpful to say, you know, we know the Word of God says the law of God is written on our hearts, and so, so then institutionally, I think it's harder to know. I feel like institutionally we don't agree right. um, as a body, and then that division. I think I'll like might make the world just like not trust us because we're totally tripping. yeah so so yeah I don't have anything else to say. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> I think that it's interesting that you talk about institutionally too, though, and the body. You know, we we um, we forget that the body is is made up of people who are meant to love and be in relationship with each other, and so it has to be centered around Christ, looking at Him and looking for that. And sometimes we think 
institutionally, like we have to make these big statements. And, and without relationship and without people actually knowing and feeling and experiencing Christ's love through us, it's, it's just noise, you know? Anybody else? On the text okay, line that back there. here, can you explain the difference in the a little bit about the shame honor culture? That, yeah, I'm from Iran. Bro. I know. I know, um, <laughs> I, I think I know that it would, well. <laughs> I think that would help in this context. And somebody asked it on the text line. Can you so. can you ask the question again? Um, can you explain a little about the honor shame culture in the New Testament? Um, Jewish culture, collectivism, society versus a more Platonic Western culture individualism understanding because I think this is part yeah. of part of what you're trying to explain is that shame guilt difference and how it works in a culture and it's well I mean we can go back to the Middle Eastern culture and at that time especially and it's actually still true that if you share a meal with somebody you're actually like including them you're saying you're good with them you're 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 leveling the playing field between you and them you're accepting them so we didn't i mean remember jesus got criticized for dining with sinners for eating with sinners and tax collectors so eating with somebody was a big deal and it was a way that you would eliminate that shame and so here we have peter who has bailed on jesus essentially denied him three times wasn't there at the at the crucifixion nowhere to be found and yet Jesus invites him in to this meal. And so that's the, I mean, he brings honor where there's typically shame. And so an honor shame, I mean, I think, so this might, I mean, I don't know, you might get offended by this, but I think the South is an honor shame culture for sure. I think the evangelical church has become an honor shame culture. And it's become so easy for us to shame people or to feel shame, but we don't see where Jesus is bringing honor because we either, we either don't see it and we keep on shaming each other or we confuse our conviction and our godly sorrow with shame and so we don't do anything about it because we don't want to feel the shame. Does that make sense? But the meal, it neutralizes everything. Eat people with friends. That's the point of the message. <laughs> no, don't eat people. People, you should eat. You should eat. No, no, don't eat people. Thank you for clarifying that. Whew. Oh, we got one back here. Layla. Susie, um, this question is like way less big brain, less theoretical than the others, but um, were other disciples also called by Jesus like to be loved? And why did Peter... Why was he referred to as the disciple that was loved by Jesus? John, you mean? Was it John? Yeah, John was the one whom Jesus loved. Okay. Yeah. Um, can you ask your question again? Sorry. Yeah, like why, why was that reference only made to one disciple, or was it to multiple? Well, so this whole section, 21, is sort of the embodiment of what's called the farewell discourse in John. So there's like, I think it's like 13 to 17, where Jesus is, is it's his last words to his disciple. It's when he prays for the disciples. And there's a lot of language in there about loving one another. They will know us, they will know you by your love for one another. They will know my love 
by your love for one another. So he talks about love throughout the whole book of John to all of the disciples. Now, why John was called the one who Jesus loved? I mean, there's so many jokes about that. I don't know. I mean, he's referred to as that multiple times. Um, maybe it's the one who, who recognized, because he recognizes him first in all of the accounts. He's the one who just stays close to him. They also had a familial relationship. John's mother and Jesus's mother were sisters. And so when, when Jesus says to John at the cross, like, you know, behold your mother, mother, behold your son. I mean, that's a next of kin relationship as well. So there might've been something deep there, but that's all the text really informs us about that. Does that help? Anybody else? Um, I read this really great quote this week. We got it's, one more. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. I was trying to run. Steve you guys, like, I'm like negative 16. I just want to say I'm on time. Yeah, you're doing it. <laughs> and we respect that. Yeah, no, okay. it's good. Um, Potentially controversial subject. Oh, good. Uh, reading in the paper this last week uh-huh. with the whole... You got to talk into the mic. I said, what's that? He said paper. Oh. I was making a joke. Oh, talk it. We'll go over that later. Um, the whole gay pride festival parade mm-hmm. controversy yeah. in Franklin. Believe what you will. Come down to the side of it. People have fears and all of that. But when you have former Saturday Night Live celebrities quoting, God hates homosexuals, God hates homosexuality. It just, to me, that's an immediate red flag because it's, I don't like when all the buzzwords weaponizing, but he doesn't. He doesn't hate. And they're using that as their message to try and get their point across. How do we deal with that? How do we deal with people who do that? How do we respond? How do we respond? Well, there's how we should respond, and then there's how I respond. Um, so I'm just going to call out my hypocrisy. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh, there's so many layers to this. Okay. I think that Jesus, the Jesus that I see in Scripture, welcomes everybody. And he welcomes everybody before they clean up their act. Peter is a perfect description of that. So whatever you believe about any of that, um, Jesus begins by welcoming. In John 3.16, which we're going to completely unpack in the next few weeks, he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whosoever shall believe in him will have eternal life, and that he didn't come to condemn the world. So the world, it doesn't give any, um, it doesn't give any, like, except for these people, except for that person, except for someone who does that. I mean, he is constantly in the business of restoring us to our salvation, to him, to relationship with him. And I think it gets really tricky when we think that that's our responsibility. And that's when we start to love the work more than we love Jesus. Because we're driven by social justice. We're driven by, I mean, that's 
my issue is social justice. I can get really heated about all the justice issues, and I can forget about my love for Jesus that I'm supposed to start with. And if we go back to our love for Jesus, and we remember the way he loves us, and the way he welcomes us, it's a whole lot easier to have space for other people. I can't do anything about the people who drag Jesus's name through the mud and do all these terrible things in the name of God, in the name of Jesus, according to the Bible. I mean, I don't, I don't even know what to do with all that other than provide a counter perspective. You know, I feel like, you know, we don't war against people, but we provide a counter to that. We will be a community that is welcoming to people. And we will be in relationship with people and sharpen one another in relationship to people as long as we're all facing Jesus and we're all in, and we're in relationship with each other. There's so much that we have to leave up to God and the way that he wants to move in people and in the world. So I don't know if that answers, but it's tough. Anyone else? Okay. Um, the quote that I read that was so good. Every worship service ideally ends with a meal. It starts around a table, and it's directed towards the Lord's Supper as a happy conclusion of meeting. If you go back to, to reading um, John 21, when he, when he talks about he, he broke the bread and he gave it to them, and then he gave them the fish, the language around that is like communion language. It's like Jesus serving part of himself to them. And we do this every week. We come around the table because we remember what we were welcomed into, and we remember that we are welcomed. And there are times, there have been times in the past for me where I haven't gone to the table because I didn't think I was worthy, I didn't think I deserved it, um, I wasn't sure what I believed, but Jesus is constantly saying, come. And so today, as we wrap up and we sing a couple of songs and we sit here at first in the stillness, just close your eyes and imagine yourself around the fire with Jesus. And what would he say to you? If Jesus were going to be restoring you or meeting you where you think you failed or where you think you're inadequate, or where you think you're not living up to something, how would he be meeting you in that? What would he have to say to you? Because as long as you have breath on this earth, God is constantly going to be calling you back to himself. And every day when we trip up, when we mess up, when we take our eyes off of him, when we forget how we love him, when we forget how he loved us, there's always an invitation to return. There's the darkness of night, but there's the daybreak of morning. And Jesus is always there wanting us back. And so where is that for you? Where do you need him? Where do you need to hear his voice? Where do you need to know he's active in your life? And talk to him in these moments that we have and know that he wants you to tell him the truth and be honest and he can handle it.